I want to invite you all to open your Bibles with me to the book of James. Now next Sunday morning, we'll have the privilege of hearing in the morning service from, from Greg as he preaches the word for us that morning. Uh, but for today, I'm excited to be able to open up the word again to the book of James, chapter 4. Now throughout the whole letter, which we've been in for a few months, James has been calling us to authentic Christianity, the kind of Christianity that is more than talk, one that's shown day after day in real-life situations, especially in how we respond to the trials that we all go through and in how we relate to other people, especially those inside the church. But if you ask James, you know, how is it that any one of us could actually live out the calling of God? How could we actually practice authentic Christianity, like to love God with all of our hearts, to love our neighbors as ourselves? It's interesting, you can go through a lot of the book of James and not really get a, a great answer for how you're going to be able to do this. There's a lot of commands in the book before you get to much hope in the book. And you really get there at the end of the third chapter of James, when James points us to the wisdom from above, the wisdom of God. What we need is God's wisdom to get planted so deeply within our hearts that what comes out of our hearts is pure, righteous fruit. And then in the fourth chapter, which we're in today, in what I think is the climax of the whole letter, James points us to the grace of God. Maybe remember James 4, verse 6. But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The only path to fulfilling the call of God is the grace of God. But if that's true, then how, how do we get it? And you see it in that text? The only path to the grace of God is the hard road of humility. God gives his grace to a particular kind of person, to, to those who are willing to admit to God just how much they need God. And then, and then you look after verse 6 in James 4. What does James do? So he, he quotes that text. That's a text from Proverbs. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then what does he do? For the next four verses, James kind of fleshes out what it looks like to be humble. Like what, what is real humility? Not just like a false claim to humility. Because lots of people can claim to be humble. And it's actually not a good sign if someone is claiming to be humble. But a lot of people can claim to be humble or think that they're humble. But what does real humility look like? You look through James 4, 7 through 10, it involves things like willingly submitting yourself and your will under God's will, recognizing how you need to be near God and repenting whenever you find out you failed God. And then in the short text we looked at last week, remember last week we just looked at two verses, James 4, verses 11 and 12. You know, those, remember that text? They're like, don't slander each other, don't judge each other. But what's the heart of that text? Like, what is James getting at in that text? I think he's turning our attention from what humility looks like 
to what pride looks like. Like, how do you know if you're proud? What's a, a sign of a proud heart in a Christian? It's when we slander other Christians or we put ourselves in the role of judge over other Christians when we think we're above Jesus' law of love. As James says pretty pointedly, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you, and it's not me. And then he ends with that question at the end of verse 12, who are you to judge your neighbor? That would be an incredibly proud thing to do. Now, that brings us to our text for today, verses 13 through 17 of James chapter 4. So let's read it. Start reading. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And maybe, maybe that last line, it might be one of the most famous lines in James. Right? What is your life? You're a mist that appears for just a little while and vanishes away. Now, to grasp that line that maybe you've heard before, maybe we, we actually sung about that line earlier this morning, we're going to need to stop first and think through a couple questions. So I want you to look back at verse 13 again. When James says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we're going to go here or there, do this or that, you know, that kind of thing. Make a profit. First, who, who is James talking to? Come now, you who say this. Who's he thinking of? Now, the, the first thing I'd suggest, which is going to become clearer as we go through the text, is that James is talking to people who are professing Christians. Okay, I think that, as you'll see his counsel later in this little paragraph, it'll become clear he's talking to professing Christians who might say this sort of thing. But to add to that, James seems to be calling out believers who may not be as poor and destitute as most of the Christians he's writing to in the letter. See, most of the people he's writing to in the letter seem to be under serious oppression, but maybe not all of them. Like, he seems to be writing here to those who maybe have more freedom than most to move around, likely as like maybe like a merchant from city to city, and to make money. And he's got something specific to say to them. Now, the second question you have to ask then is, what exactly is wrong with what they're saying, right? James seems to be like, you shouldn't be saying this, but did you look at it and closely? And if I ask you, what do you think is wrong in what they're saying? So just, just think about that, okay? He says in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade to make a profit. What's wrong with that? I mean, is, is the problem... You know, like the lack of clarity about when they're going to leave. Today or tomorrow. Or, or which town they're going to go into. Such and such a town. You know, you've got to be more decisive in your plans 
more clear with your five-year vision for your life? Is that, is that what the problem is? I don't, I don't think that's the problem. Uh, is, is the problem, perhaps, that the person has made plans at all? Like, is, is James against all making of plans? You know, never make any plans. I, I think you read the rest of the Bible. That's, that's, not, that's not the problem. Right, is, is James' problem maybe that they want to make money? You know, James is like the anti-capitalist. You know, is that, is that the problem? He's not, you know, don't ever try to make any profit. Is that what he's getting at? I don't think that's the problem either. So what exactly is wrong with what they're saying? Says, Come here, listen to me, you who say this, this, this. And you can tell he doesn't like it, but, but what doesn't he like about it? And, and I, would, I would suggest, actually, that, that there's, I'm not sure there's anything wrong with anything in the statement, but something is still wrong. And what is that? I think it's, it's what's not in the statement. What is left out of those lines that they'd say? And the answer would be what? What do you think? How about one word answer? Maybe God? And you just consider again what's being said. It's, it's like the person asks, what am I going to do with my life these next couple of years? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do this or that for this long in that place, and it's all going to be great. And where's God? Nowhere to be found in that. And, and what's, what's wrong with talking like that, thinking like that, planning like that? Well, for, for one thing, that kind of planning where God's nowhere to be found, I think if you think of James, one of his big themes, that is worldly. That's exactly how the world processes life. And if this is in our outlook in life, we are likely very stained by the world, perhaps far more than we realize. This sort of outlook on life, right? you know, what am I going to do? I'm just going to do this or that for this long, and it's all going to go great. That sort of outlook is what some call practical atheism. It's, it's living life as if it's my life, and I'm calling the shots, as if there's not truly a God in whom I move and live and have my being as if there's not actually a God who's granting me every breath that I take. It's living my life and planning my life without God. And unfortunately, many Christians who worship God weekly on Sundays live daily that way. We can make our plans about where we'll live, what we'll do for a job, how we're going to use our weekends, what we're going to do with our money, or when and where and how we're going to retire in the exact same way as any other nice person in our country, without God factored in at all. And we can do all of that even though we sing loudly on Sundays that God's the sovereign king and sustainer of everything in my life. So again, what's, what's wrong with this statement? I, I'm not sure there's anything wrong in the words said, but in what is not said, what is not factored in, namely God. This, that sort of planning is at minimum worldly. 
But I actually think as you read on, James sees something else in that kind of planning. And it's what he's going to emphasize later in the text. But we'll get there in a minute. Now look back at the text and we'll read a little further. So verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we're going to go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You see that? James says, you make all these plans, and yet you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And that sounds just like a, a famous proverb, Proverbs 27, verse 1. Don't boast about tomorrow. Maybe, you could, maybe you've learned that. For you don't know what a day will bring forth. To think that I would be so bold, so as to say, you know, I'm going to do this or that, here or there, for this amount of time. I don't even know what's going to happen in my life this afternoon let alone tomorrow. Verse 14 again says, what is your life? You're just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And what, what are we? What's our life? Just, just a vapor, like the breath of air on a winter morning in Minnesota. When you step outside, you see it, then it's gone. Here one minute, gone the next. That's what our lives are like. That's what we are in the light of eternity. And that, that's why we read Psalm 90 earlier. Did you remember some of that? Like, our days may come to 70 years or, or, or even by our strength to 80. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow for they quickly pass and we fly away. Some of us here may not make it to 2021. Some of us, maybe will live to 40 or 50. Some may even live to 80. But in the light of eternity, what is that? What's 80 years? And go, go ask, go ask a few 80-year-olds what they think. What would they say? Oh, life's so long. I imagine you're more likely to hear, wow, these 80 years have gone by so fast. Life is fleeting. It's always slipping away. We have no ultimate control over it. We probably don't think too much about this. Because it can be depressing, can't it? Nobody wants to think about this. How quickly life is slipping away. But back in Psalm 90, Moses doesn't respond by saying, just ignore it. Try to live as if this isn't true. Just suppress these thoughts. That's what the world does with these thoughts. Nobody wants to think about this. But not Moses. You know what Moses says? He cries out to God in that same psalm. Oh God, teach us to number our days so we can get a heart of wisdom. And now, now back in James, all of this so far has really been about what not to say. So what should we say? Like, how should we plan? Look at verse 15. He's very clear. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You see, I hope you see what I'm saying. The, the corrective isn't really a corrective on everything that was said, but on that one thing that was left out. Namely, God. What a Christian should say is, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Because I don't know 
what tomorrow will bring. Sure, I can plan, but only God knows what tomorrow's going to bring. In fact, God doesn't just know about tomorrow. He holds tomorrow and every moment in between in his hands. And because of that, anything that I plan to do or that I hope to do with my life is only if he allows, is only if he gives me the breath, the strength and the chance to do it. I must recognize that all my plans are just that. They're just my plans. And I've got no power to make sure they happen. And because of that, in everything I do, in all that I plan, I have to submit my life, my goals, my dreams, my plans, consciously to the will of the Lord. It's only if the Lord wills that I'm going to make it through the next week. It's only if the Lord wills that God's going to continue to prosper this church. It's only if the Lord wills that I'll see my grandchildren. My life is in his hands. Now, now let me pause and ask a question about this. Does this mean we must literally say, Lord willing, after every single thing that we plan to do? Okay. Now, I think my answer would be, no, I don't think that's what James is getting at. But, but first of all, I want to point out that it's not a bad idea to say this more often than we probably do. Because there is clear precedent in the Bible for saying this. Not just that James says, you should say this. But Paul, the apostle, is a great example of saying this kind of thing repeatedly, and you probably haven't paid attention to it. Because you only really think about what he's saying when you're thinking of this text in James. That's at least the case for me. So just a couple examples. Like one, when Paul first went to the city of Ephesus, they really wanted him to stay for a long time. They were like begging him for, for him to stay. And do you know what he said? Because he, he had somewhere he had to go. He, he promised them, I will come back to you. And what do you think he said? If it's God's will. And fortunately, God did allow it, and he made it back within about a year. And he stayed there for three years. When Paul writes to the Romans about how much he wants to visit them, he says, Listen, I'm always asking God in my prayers that if it is somehow in his will, I may now at last succeed in reaching you. And then at the end of Romans, Paul pleads with them to pray with him for safety in Jerusalem so that he can come to them in Rome with joy by God's will and be refreshed in their company. And do you know what happened? It didn't turn out that way. Paul hoped and prayed, and they prayed that it would turn out that way. By God's will, and it turned out to not be God's will. Instead, he was, a, at least not in the way they thought, he was arrested unjustly in Jerusalem and held in custody for the next two years. So to be clear, this is a good thing to say, Paul does say it, and after all, James does say you ought to say this. But again, I mean, if you're just asking, are we required to say these exact same words all the time? I don't think that's what James is after. And in fact, you could say these words all the time, and you could very well be missing the heart of what James is getting at. James' concern is not about how often we say the words, but about the condition of our hearts and whether our hearts are actually consciously in submission to God 
do we consciously recognize God's sovereignty over us and his right to redirect our life and our plans however he wants. And now we come to the main problem that James is actually addressing in this. Look at verse 16. As it is, like in what you're doing, in planning this way, he says, you are boasting in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. Do you see it now? Is this passage simply about how we make plans? No. This verse reveals the heart of the problem that he's addressing. If we plan out our lives as if we have the power to make the things happen that we want to happen, do you know what that is? That is a sign of a very proud heart. And it's sinful to think this way. As he says, all such boasting is evil. So if you reach back to the the text last week, little text last week, about slander judging one another, but ultimately about what that reveals about our hearts. Proud people do that. And this text about planning, how we plan, if we plan as if we're in control, but ultimately about what that reveals about our hearts. Proud people plan their lives out that way. And pride's a big deal. Not only is it sinful, but in the broader context here in James chapter 4, what does pride guarantee you from God? Resistance. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And James then concludes with a short statement. Our, Our last verse for today, verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. Now I take that as the conclusion to what we saw today, but maybe the conclusion to the whole body of the book of James. If we know what's right to do and we don't respond, we're sinning. That's actually really similar to how the first chapter ended. Do you remember that? About how you can't just be a hearer of the word. What do you have to be? A doer of the word. For James, hearing or knowing what's right is never enough. That applies to how we plan, how we talk about each other this week. We know what's right to do. We've heard it the last two weeks. We've all heard the same thing from God's word. So if we don't obey what we've heard, James would say we're sinning. But this applies to all we've been hearing from James for the last couple of months, and ultimately to all that you read in the Bible. When we look into God's word, it's like a mirror. You see who you are, who God is, what God wants to do in your life. And when you don't do anything with it, you're sinning. That's what James seems to be saying, right? To the person who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. It's sin. See, sin isn't just doing something God told you not to do. It is just as much a sin to fail to do what God has told you to do. Or to put it in the broader story of James, authentic Christianity isn't simply not doing what you know is wrong. It's actively doing what you know is right. And I think this text today is a really fitting text for us in 2020. 
In fact, I think there's hardly been a better illustration of this text in my lifetime, at least, than what we've witnessed in the first half of 2020. I mean, think back to the turn of the year. We all had our plans for 2020. All over the world, nations, businesses, schools, churches, individuals, were coming into 2020, all sorts of plans for the year. And has anybody's plans turned out? I think there might not be one person's plans in the whole world in the last six months that have turned out the way that they thought. What could no one foresee? No one could foresee the dramatic upheaval of the entire world in a matter of months through an invisible microscopic virus. Nobody could see that except for God. So in a sense, I was thinking, nature itself has taught us in the last few months what this text is telling us. And now God has spoken it to us in his word, telling us we're not in control. We are not God. Only God is God. As the songwriter says, we're a moment. He is forever. And the only hope we have in life and death is what? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Do we live as though our lives are truly in the loving hands of God? Do we plan that way? You know, some, there, there was a man who lived that way perfectly. I was thinking about him this week. He lived that way all the time. There's only been one man like that. His name is Jesus. Think of how he lived. Constant, conscious awareness of his Father's power and constant submission of all of his plans to his Father's will. I love what it says in Hebrews about this. It says, when Christ came into the world, he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. Or maybe the the climactic moment of his life where you see this, maybe you think of it, it's when he fell on his face and prayed in his last hour of freedom. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' entire life was lived in conscious recognition of his Father's sovereignty over his every breath and an active submission to do only what the Father willed for him to do. And you know what? I haven't lived that way. Have you? We, we often buy into the narratives of this age that we are the masters of our fate, that we are the captains of our souls, as if we have the power to chart our own course in this life. And then God speaks to us words like these, what is your life? You're just a mist. It's here for a moment. It's going to be gone so soon. God is calling us through those words to humility, in how we live, and how we plan. And he's calling us to turn away and repent from our pride. He's calling us to look again to Jesus, the one who did live the way we should have, 
and then died for us in submission to his Father's will to pay the price for our sinful pride. Survey the cross once again today. And on the one hand, take comfort in this, that the Prince of Glory died for your pride. And then, may the sight of the cross cause you to pour contempt on all your pride. Let's pray. Father, would you forgive us for how we so often live and plan just like anybody else who doesn't even know you. Forgive us for our pride and lead us again to Jesus who paid the price for our pride and cause us to hate the pride that so easily wells up within us. This is something I know we all struggle with every week. And, and it shows in the way we talk and the way we judge and think about each other and the way we think about our lives. So Lord, I pray that You'll humble us through this and assure us of your promise of grace to the humble. I pray you'd give us a good week, Lord, this week where we love one another as ourselves and where we much more consciously this week than last submit all of our plans to your sovereign will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.